What is power? When I ask that word, when I say that word, what is power? What kind of thoughts and ideas come to your mind? Maybe you think of just huge, huge things or powerful individuals, but what is power? World War I was started with one bullet. This is Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He was the leader of Austria. And his assassination with one bullet started an escalation of events that led to all of the world powers fighting each other. For years, millions of people dying. One bullet is what started World War I. The white supremacists thought that they could end the civil rights movement. Again, with one bullet. Not once, but twice. Two times they thought, we can end this movement with one bullet. But what they didn't count on was that movement was ignited by one dream. One dream that was embedded in the hearts of the people that they could not, you can't quench that. It is a dream that is too powerful to be stopped. Multi-billion dollar companies all have to start with one sale. Now we can make the argument, most of these make millions of sales every year and that's what actually gets them the billions of dollars. But in reality, they all had to start with one sale. And we have been saved from death and hell with one cross. We've been talking all summer about the book of Judges. And throughout that book, we have seen some powerful people, some amazing feats that have been done through the book of Judges. But last week, we ended seeing what happens when God's people do what is right in their own eyes and use their power in wicked ways. We all have been given a power. And as we shift into the book of Acts, we will see that we have been given a power to spread the most incredible message of all time. That people can be saved, be transformed, that they can be given new life through the hope in one man. But we have a choice to use that power for his glory or to do what is right in our own eyes. I am so excited to be here and to be starting this new series. We're kicking off the book of Acts today, and the book of Acts is just such an incredible book. So if you have your Bibles with you or if you use it on your phone, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 1, and that's where we'll be today. We will be going through the book of Acts for about the next nine months basically all the way till the Easter season. Acts is an incredible book that, that falls into the genre of church history. It is a book that chronicles what happens after the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. It shows us what the disciples did after their leader left. What happened next? Today, we will cover just the, the first 11 verses of chapter 1, 
But like I said, we're going to just go through this and just dig in deeper and deeper. But today just really gives us some introductory thoughts and ideas as to what's going on in this book. Follow along as I read these first 11 verses for you. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men by them, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What an incredible start to a book. And as we start any book, we really need to ask some important questions to really understand what's going to transpire in the rest of the book. We have to ask questions like, who was it written by? What are the, the, who are the main characters? What is the purpose for writing it? And what does the book teach us about God? And those first three verses really show us a lot of that, a lot of the introductory stuff. It is important for us to remember that the Bible will never mean something to us that it didn't first mean to its original audience. It had to mean something to them first before it means something to us. So we need to remember that. That's just good knowledge to know anytime you open up your Bible. It had to mean something first before it means something to us. So first, we can see who the author is. Now, unlike a lot of books, you know, a lot of the rest of the books in the New Testament, they stay. You know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, or John, apostle of Jesus, it, they say who the author is. This one doesn't actually say that right away. So this is where we have to do a little bit of biblical research. We have to dig into our Bible and say, okay, who is the author of this book? That name Theophilus gives us a clue to the author. But who is Theophilus? A quick search tells us that the name Theophilus only appears one other time in the entire Bible, and that is in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I, that's on the screen here, and I'll just read it to you. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So there's that name again, Theophilus. But who is he still? Who does, who does it tell us who he is? We can understand now, if it's written here and in Acts, it must have been the author of Luke too that wrote both of these books, and that was Luke. Obviously, the gospel is named after him, so now we can figure out who wrote the book. The name Theophilus means lover of God, but we still don't know for sure, and nobody really knows for sure who this guy is. These are the only two times he's mentioned, so we don't really know for sure who he is. But he must have been somebody that was really interested in the story of Jesus. Somebody that Luke knew and wanted to help him. Between the books of Luke and Acts, there are 42 chapters basically dedicated to one guy. 52, I'm sorry, 52 chapters dedicated to one guy. I think about what would it look like in our day and age 52 chapters of a letter written to one person just to help him take a couple of more steps in his faith. As a youth pastor, I used to get late night text messages all the time, and it would just be threads upon threads from this one kid asking about Old Testament theology and rituals and feasts, and I would get so annoyed. I'm like, oh, why do I have to answer these questions? Why can't he just go to Google like I'm going to too? But if Luke can write 52 chapters, I suppose I can write a lengthy text message. Luke and Acts were both written by Luke, but again, then we have to ask, who is this Luke guy? Luke was a traveling partner and co-worker of Paul. We can see in Colossians 4.14, Philemon verse 20, and throughout, or in the rest of, or later in the book of Acts, it'll talk about this guy, Luke, and talk about who he is, and when he comes into the picture. He was a doctor, and that's important to know because his gospel and the book of Acts are very different than the other ones. They're very detail-oriented. They're very focused, just like we hope that our doctors are, right? We hope our doctors are really detail-oriented. Well, hopefully Luke was too, and he was. As, As we look through this, we can see how detailed he was. Luke was also a Gentile, which just simply means non-Jew, which also means that he wasn't an original follower of Jesus. He was somebody that came in later, and actually through the ministry of Paul, he got saved and started co-working with him. And then during that time that he was traveling with Paul and laboring alongside him, he started writing down everything he saw and heard and everything that he could talk to the other disciples he'd bumped into, everything he could find out, he tried to write down so that he could write these letters. These two letters originally were one volume, but when the Bible was put together in what we have today, the the canon, they separated them so that they could keep the Gospels over here and they could keep church history separate. It's just so that it flows better in what we have as a Bible. But originally when they were being passed around, they were one volume. This book tells us the early story, the, the story of the early church and the spread of Christianity through the known world at that time. When I did a quick Google search, it told me that there are 2.2 billion Christians in this world today. We can argue the, the truthfulness of that number and argue, well, 
are they all Christians? Are they just nominal? Do they actually go to church? But the reality is 2.2 billion people in this world, when surveyed, when asked, what religion are you? They say Christian. 2.2 billion. In the opening chapters of this book, there are under 500. If it wasn't for the faithfulness of the men in this book, where would we be today? This is a book dedicated to the ideas of evangelism, discipleship, missions, and that is why we have decided that this is best book for us right now here at Stonebridge, and that's why I'm so excited to see how this book will impact all of our lives. We have an incredible opportunity to reach out into this community and the world around us, and through this book of Acts, we can see examples of it being done. And lastly, we ask the question, who is the main character of this book? Some people will argue and say, well, I think it's Paul because he's in the first eight chapters of the book. It's really dedicated to him. It's all, and it's for, I'm sorry, Peter first. Peter's the first eight chapters. It's all about him, and he was the leader of disciples after Jesus left, and everything was centered on him. But then we can also say, well, what about Paul? Paul was the reason for the gospel going out from Jerusalem, going all over the world, and the last 20 chapters are almost dedicated to him. Is it Peter or is it Paul? Who's the main character? In reality, the main character is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is mentioned 57 times in the book of Acts. Three times just in these 11 verses alone. The whole story of the beginning of Christianity and churches and the power of the gospel is centered around the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is so much the main character of this book that we can see that in verses 4 through 8, a promise is made. A promise that he will come. But if he's so important in this book, can we answer who the Holy Spirit even is? Many of us may be able to say, yeah, well, the Holy Spirit, he's, he's one of the Trinity, he's part of God, and, you know, he's fully God, he's, he's like God and like Jesus, but different. What does that actually mean to us? I've heard some people say that the Holy Spirit is our conscience. And I can see how that analogy can work, because the, the Spirit is the very presence of God inside followers of Jesus. And the Spirit is responsible for directing our words and our thoughts and our actions. But my first problem with equating the Holy Spirit to, our, to a conscience is, well, does that mean non-Christians don't have a conscience? Absolutely not. That's ridiculous to say that. I have met some non-Christians who are better people than Christians I have met. I have met non-Christians who do better things and more things for the community than some Christians I have met. So we can't just say that it's just our conscience. Mark Twain once said, a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory. If I can walk in here and stand on this stage with a clear conscience, I have to be forgetting something and probably stuff I did this morning. The Holy Spirit is so much more than just a little cricket sitting on our shoulder telling us what not to do. No, Pinocchio, don't go down there. Those are bad boys down there. No, Pinocchio, don't smoke cigarettes. That's bad, Pinocchio. 
It's so much more than that. The Holy Spirit, he is God inside of us. Kevin DeYoung says, the Holy Spirit is simply and gloriously another helper. As if God the Father and Jesus Christ aren't enough for us, he has given us another helper. The very power, Kevin goes on to say, the very power and presence of the resurrected and ascended Christ on earth. This is God on earth and inside of us. That is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is responsible for many things, and through the book of Acts, we're going to cover a lot of those things that the Holy Spirit does. But base level, he is responsible for empowering illuminating, guiding, and directing all believers. The last time I preached, I talked about Samson. And repeatedly, that story talks about the Spirit of God coming mightily upon Samson, empowering him to do incredible things. Through the Spirit, he catches 300 foxes and ties their tails together. And through the Spirit, he lifts an an entire city gate and carries it up a hill and drops it on a bunch of people. Incredible feats of strength. Through the Spirit, Samson does this. I feel like so often we think of the Holy Spirit in the same way. We pray things like, okay, God, my pastor is asking me to go out on the streets and talk to strangers about you. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. The only time we are praying for spirit filling is when we have something difficult that we don't really want to do. We should be praying for spirit filling every single day. When we're playing with our kids, when we're going out on dates with our spouses, When we're going to work, whether it's a good job or a bad job, we should be praying for spirit filling just to walk out the door. Pastor Paul Washer says, I used to tell young preachers, in order to preach, you've got to have the power of God in your life. Now I tell them, in order to tie your shoes, you have to have the power of God in your life. That's why I usually wear slip-ons. Maybe if we were praying for spirit filling a little more often, we might actually be able to talk about our faith. Some of those words that I've said already, I know they just put fear in your hearts. Evangelism, discipleship, missions. Those are scary words to Christians. If I told you all that after church, we're all going to load up in cars, and a fourth of us, we're going to go to the mud volleyball pits, and a fourth of us, we're going to go out to the disc golf course, and a fourth of us, we're going to go to the lip sync contest, and a fourth of us, we're going to go out to who's left at the racetrack, and we're going to spend the rest of the day evangelizing people. How many would come with me? One? Yeah, right, Ava. Thank you. (laughs) Got Ava. (laughs) Evangelism discipleship and missions are not optional for followers of Jesus. I wonder where we would be if Peter's response when Jesus said, go feed my sheep, if he'd have been like, you know, Jesus, I'm kind of an introvert. I don't really know enough about my Bible. I think I'll pass. This isn't for me. I'm just not gifted in these areas, Jesus. Where would we be? Do you think 
that what Jesus has done in your life was meant to end there. Like you are the last rung on the ladder. Like Jesus like, praise God, we got Joey, we're done now. Perfect. Absolutely not. The gospel that came to you was always meant to go through you. It was never meant to stop at you. We come in here and we sing songs about Jesus in these safe walls. And then we hit mute as soon as we walk out the door. It should not be this way. Jesus did not give us suggestions. He gave us commands. But he doesn't just give us a command and then walk away. He doesn't say, go be my, go be my witnesses and then walks away. He gives us this promise. Look at verse 8 in Acts 1 with me again. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the key verse in this chapter. It explains that the power of the church comes from the Holy Spirit, not from us. You will receive power. You have received power. That word in Greek is a word called dynamis. It means inherent power. It means power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. As Christians, we have inherent power. We have power residing in us by our very nature. I need every one of you to accept something. You as a person are weak, and so am I. We are weak. God is not saying, no, suck it up, try harder. I don't care if you don't think you can do this. Try harder. Pull up your bootstraps. He actually is saying, you know what? The weaker you are, the better. Because the weaker you are, the more space I have to work through you. We have been given power from the Holy Spirit. The ability to evangelize or disciple or go on missions does not come from our own abilities. It is not because we are the most eloquent public speakers or because we have 400 Bible verses memorized from Awana. It has nothing to do with that. That helps. The ability is supernatural. Many times it's not going to feel comfortable. God has not called you to feel comfortable. We use words like evangelism and discipleship and missions, and those are correct words. They are what we are supposed to be doing. But look towards the middle of verse 8 with me again. Be my witness. You will be my witnesses. Witnesses is a key word in the book of Acts. It's used 29 times. When you think about the word witness, what comes to mind? I listened to a sermon and it talked about, what, one of the guys was talking about, he has a friend who's in law enforcement. And he says, what does a witness do? When you get called to be a witness on the stand, what is your responsibility? Are you expected to know everything about the case? Are you expected to pass judgment on the person who's on trial? Does the judge care about your ideas? No. All you are called to do is bear witness to what you have seen and what you have heard. That's it. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do. It has been said that some of God's people have a calling to evangelize. 
That's that ability to take that next step, to take the five points of the Bible, of the gospel message, and to be able to just bring it to people in an incredible way. Some people have been given that gift, but all of God's people are expected to witness to what they have seen and what they have heard, to tell the world about the Savior. But where? Where are we expected to witness? The last few lines in verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the world. Here, there, and everywhere is basically what he's saying. And the order in which Jesus states this is important. They were commanded to start in Jerusalem. And in verse 4, they actually were commanded to stay in Jerusalem. That may not actually seem like that big of a deal, right? It's like, okay, Jesus calls them into ministry and stay where you are. Just hang out there. You don't have to move. You don't have to uproot your family. No big deal, right? Awesome. Thanks, Jesus. Actually, so Jesus had just been crucified 40 days earlier in Jerusalem. And now his body was missing. And everyone knew that these men were the followers of Jesus. To say that this was a hostile environment for these followers is an understatement. This is the last place they wanted to be. They wanted to run. They wanted to get out of town as fast as possible. But Jesus had promised them a helper. He promised that when he left, he would send the helper. And now here he tells them to stay and wait for that helper. The order that Jesus states is important as he wanted them to start right where they were. He wanted them to stay to start in Jerusalem, their hometown, their boon. And then to Judea and Samaria, the country that their town was in and the neighboring country, their, their Iowa and their Midwest or even their United States is what he's saying, the area that you're in. And then lastly, he says to the ends of the world, the order is important as we need to make sure that we are witnessing to those that God places logistically closest to us first. Yes, we should be going on missions trips to reach the lost in other countries, but not if we can't walk across the street and say hello. With this final promise and final command, the Savior leaves. Verses 9 through 11. Can you imagine standing there watching Jesus ascending to heaven? I often think while reading this passage, why? Why did Jesus have to leave? He had, he had already defeated sin and death with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Why can't he just bring about his kingdom right here? He's won. He did it. Just start the kingdom right now. And looking back at verses 6 and 7, the disciples clearly thought the same way too. They asked, right now, Jesus? There are many reasons I believe that Jesus had to go back to heaven. John chapter 14 tells us one reason. It says that Jesus said, I have to go and I have to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many rooms, but I go to prepare a place for you. So he had to prepare a place for all of us. He also had to go in order for the Spirit to come. John 14 also says that. I have to leave so that you will receive the Helper. He obviously thinks that it's better for the Spirit to be here than himself. Most importantly, Jesus had to go in order for us to carry out the mission of witnessing. 
I truly believe the apostles and us wouldn't have achieved their full potential if Jesus stayed on earth. We see that throughout the Gospels. We see the disciples saying and doing dumb things and questioning and re-questioning and why, Jesus, what about this? And they just seem to keep making mistakes. But after Jesus ascends, Peter and John are on fire. They are preaching and performing miracles left and right. They are unashamed of their beliefs and they are boldly speaking in the face of persecution. These final two verses are so great. It says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Here are the disciples just standing here, just gazing into heaven, just staring at Jesus fly away. And I think about this idea of gazing, I instantly thought of like that middle school girl in study hall who's just gazing at that boy that she likes, or the middle school boy playing video games, gazing at the television. There's just that, just stare, like I don't know what to do next. I'm just going to sit here and stare. Then the angels appear, and they're like, what are you doing? Go! Why are you just standing here? The angels are almost annoyed. They're like, you've been told what to do. Jesus told you what to do, and you're just standing here. Go! Our mission is not to come in here every week and to simply gaze at Jesus. We are to make disciples, to be his witness, to invite people. I thought about people who are good at inviting and, and who, who have been doing an incredible job. And I instantly thought of a, a young woman in our church. And she's recently started coming in the past couple of months. And every time I see her come, it seems like she has more children with her. And I know she only has a couple of children, but every single week she just seems to have more and more children every single week she comes. Last week alone she had six kids from three different families by herself. It's hard for me to bring two. I don't actually. She does. But <laughs> so I messaged this woman and I said, hey, would it be okay if I talked about you? And her response was perfect. She says, of course, I hope to bring more. Because six isn't enough. Let's gonna buy this woman a 15-passenger van. Let's see if she can fill her up. Now, when we talk about the idea of witnessing, I want you to understand, I'm not just standing here telling you to invite people to church. That can be helpful. But when God says that you have been given power to witness, he is saying to witness about Jesus. Not just Stonebridge Church. We come here and we worship and we I preach and we hear messages and we pray. And so that's good. We have to be making that connection. What is it about Stonebridge Church that helps point people to, to the resurrected Savior? Help make that connection. We're inviting people. Yes, invite them to church, but follow up and help them make that connection. Now, in conclusion, I thought, and I said, why is it that people struggle 
to invite? What are some things? And so I, I came up with four things that can keep us from witnessing. And right now, a few people are turning around, and they're like, he only has three minutes, and he has four more points. And then I prayed about it, and I thought about it. And I said, yeah, these four are really important, and we're going to definitely address them through the rest of this series. Things like lack of joy and lack of, or to, to fear, to being unsure, lack of clarity, simply having too many distractions in our life, all of those are true. But I thought about it, and I said, you know what? There's one major thing that is keeping us from witnessing. Lack of power. So again, I ask, what is power to you? You have the power to witness about the greatest story of all time and how you are involved in that, how you are part of that story. And you have the power, or, or you have the power, to do what is right in your own eyes. Just like the Israelites did in Judges, you have the power to speak or to be silent. God is the ultimate source of our power. The same power that God used to create the heavens and the earth and everything around us. The same power that Jesus will use when he returns and simply has to snap his finger to eradicate all evil and sin and Satan. The same power that God used to send his son to this earth and to raise him from the dead to forgive our sins and forgive you and I. That is the same exact power that is residing in each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus. You have received power from the Holy Spirit. When you say you can't witness to people because you are too shy, the problem is not that you are too shy. It is that you are not tapping into the power source, the power source that God has given you. God is not telling all of us to stand up here every week and preach, but he's telling us to be a witness to what we have seen and heard. I leave you with one final question. Who can you go to? As we walk through the book of Acts, I want you to be constantly thinking, who can you go to? There's lots of empty chairs sitting around. There's lots of potential for people to be inviting, to be reaching out. And as we look at the empty chairs around us, I want you to think, who was this supposed to be? Who was that supposed to be? whose grandmother, whose mother, whose coworker, whose neighbor was that supposed to be? And who had the power with one voice to invite that person? Let's pray. Father God, I pray for this empty chair, and I pray for the empty chairs in the room, God, I pray that we all can understand the power that we have from the Holy Spirit. Not everyone can preach. Not everyone can share. We can all witness. We can all tell what we have seen and what we have heard. Help us to be bold in our faith to invite our neighbors, our coworkers, our family. And some of them will say no. 
But God, don't let us get discouraged. Through the next nine months, help us to be obedient to this command. Help us to keep our eyes open as to who you are calling us to go to. God, I praise you for the power that you have given each and every one of us through your spirit. That is how we do this. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.